This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Michael McFall. I'm the acting director here at FSI. I'm also a professor of political science and a Hoover Fellow and the director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law, which is one of the centers here at FSI. So I've been rather busy as acting director and eagerly await Chip's return in January. We, last year, and I see mo many of you who were here last year, uh, scared you to death in our conference. As you recall, it was called A World at Risk. Uh, my wife described the program as 50 Ways to Die Young. Nuclear holocaust, pandemic flu, terrorist attack, for those of you who forgot. I'll tell you honestly, I did not forget. Uh, it most certainly ranks as one of the conferences that were most memorable to me. Uh, as uh, I go to lots of conferences that I can't remember a single thing that was said. Uh, that was not true from last year, and so not true that on Saturday after the conference, we actually went and bought some new emergency supplies. So there's a causal impact directly at the micro level of FSI educating uh, Stanford in the world. Now, I have to tell you, uh, I'm sorry to report that the world has not made a lot of progress on all the things we talked about last year. And throughout the course of the day, you're going to get hear updates on all of those nasty things. They're still out there. They're still threatening us today. But at this meeting, you're going to hear some other things that are also happening in the world today. And in particular, we're focusing on the rise of Asia, China, Japan, India, and the implications that that means for the international system. It's not the only thing, but it'll be our, our main focus both in the morning plenary session and uh, at lunchtime. Now, it's not all good. There are real challenges there, as the program says, but there are real opportunities there as well. And it's good to note that all these things are happening at the same time. So there's ways for you to get richer uh, working with your Chinese, Indians, and Japanese colleagues. You might uh, still die young, but you might have a better life before it happens. So let me just remind you of the structure of the day, which has now become the tradition here at our third annual FSI conference. We will start the plenary session, as I just said, called Asia's Triple Rise, How China, India, and Japan Will Shape Our Future. Um, we have went out and got the best uh, who know about each of those countries, Ambassador Stapleton Roy, Ambassador Robert Blackwell, and our own Ambassador Michael Armacost. That panel will be chaired by Giwak Shin from uh, APARC. At lunch, our keynote speaker is Sashi Thar, a former diplomat and undersecretary of the United Nations, as well as historian and novelist, he'll speak on India's future as a great power. And then the last plenary session after lunch is called Critical Connections, Faces of Security in the 21st Century, uh, featuring our own Lynn Eden from CSAC as the chair, Larry Diamond from CDDRL, Scott Sagan from CSAC, and Roz Naylor, uh, from Woods Institute and FSI. Now, there's a quiz after that. Uh, tell us what those three things and those three people have to do with each other, but I think you're going to be amazed at the kinds of connections you'll see from that panel. Now, after each plenary, we have uh, 
really just a smorgasbord of breakout sessions. They're designed to be interactive, and in the audience, I would encourage you to make them interactive. Do not let anybody show you 77 slides uh, in a 50-minute time span. That's not the idea of these panels. They're designed to be provocative, quick, punchy, interactive, and in small settings. Uh, your only problem is going to be choosing which one to go to, because there really is truly a lot of talent competing against each other at those two. So choose wisely and feel free to move around if you so happen to choose. And let me just also note that uh, reacting to some feedback from our panel, uh, our conference last year, uh, we've gone out and found more people from the world to speak here, more people from the Washington community to speak here, interspersed with our own talent uh, locally. And I would just note that both of the keynote speakers at this conference uh, had to travel from abroad to be here with us today. And I, I thank Judith and the rest of the FSI staff for making that happen. But it's only our third year, but we're trying to start some traditions. Um, we begin with wisdom this morning. Uh, I would have called it the three wise men of Stanford, uh, but unfortunately, Secretary uh, Schultz could not be with us here today. But as it has been the first and second years, we start with who I consider to be the great wisdom wise men of Stanford University. Uh, one also happened to be the Secretary of State to the United States, Warren Christopher, uh, but more importantly, he was a president and board of the Board of Trustees here at Stanford, uh, and truly one of the great uh, friends and great treasures of Stanford University. The other one, in addition to being uh, a professor here at Stanford University, a member of the CSAC team, uh, truly a Stanford uh, treasure and friend, also happened to be Secretary of Defense, um, 19th Secretary of Defense. So I, ha I have long bios here. I would be embarrassed to try to read them in front of these two gentlemen. You all know them well because they are such Stanford uh, institutions in and of themselves. So we start with our two wise men. And Chris, the floor is yours. Good morning. I'm just delighted to be here with so many familiar faces and longtime friends. Uh, I'm especially glad to be here with Bill Perry. Bill Perry and I served together in Washington twice, first in the Carter administration and then in the Clinton administration. The last time when he was Secretary of Defense and I was Secretary of State. And I'd have to say that thanks to Bill's generosity, we just buried the myth that the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense never get along well. I wish it had stayed buried. <laughs> uh, you know, when I was asking what I should talk about today, they said, tell us what you're thinking about these days and what you're doing. I don't know about this wise men stuff, but I'll tell you about what kind of preoccupies me at the moment. For more than two centuries, a debate has raged in our country over whether the president or the Congress has the power to start, conduct, or terminate a war. Soldiers and practical politicians have joined this debate that has very enormous consequences, I think, as you all know. Our great Constitution, which is such a wonderfully prophetic uh, document, is absolutely clear on this subject, but it's clear both ways. It provides compelling arguments for the Congress and 
On the other hand, very good arguments for the president having the power to start, conduct, and terminate a war. Professor Corbin was, was certainly absolutely correct when he described our Constitution as being an invitation to struggle, which it's been in a healthy way all through these years. <clears throat> On the one hand, the proponents of the uh, congressional supremacy side of things point to Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, which provides that Congress shall have the power to declare war and to grant letters of mark and reprisal. These proponents say that after Congress is authorized to declare the war, then the president, but only then has the power under his commander-in-chief powers to conduct the war. Uh, they also argue that the president can act without congressional authorization only in a very limited set of circumstances where he doesn't have time to get congressional approval, such as where America has been invaded or our citizens have been endangered. On the other hand, uh, the proponents of the presidential side of this issue point to the commander-in-chief clause of the Constitution. They say that the framers intended to put the power there uh, because the president is the power of the most information and the best ability to execute the commander-in-chief powers. Uh, these proponents downplay the powers of Congress, saying that it really is the power to formally declare war only to recognize the existence of war that has already started. Well, this controversy has gone on for a long time. Uh, the uh, people who are proponents of the presidential side of this story say that uh, Congress, if it wants to, can exercise the power of purse, or in an extreme case, it could go about process of impeachment. History is equally unclear on this subject, although it does make it clear that our constitutional powers were very anxious to avoid the absolute power of the British king in matters pertaining to war. And it does seem, if you look back at the history, that in the 19th century, the presidents reflecting this constitutional history leaned to Congress and gave it the primacy in, in war issues. The 20th century, for some reason, brought a very sharp change in attitudes. In the 20th century, the presidents have sought a declaration of war only twice, in World War I and World War II. Uh, in both the Iraq wars, uh, the president sought and obtained an authority to go to war, but no declaration of war. In this subject, uh, which is such a lively subject these days, the Vietnam War was a real watershed. Both uh, Presidents Kennedy and President Johnson sent troops to Vietnam between 1960 and 1964 without any congressional blessing. And then, as at least some of you in this room may remember, Johnson went to Congress in 1964 and obtained the very controversial Tonkin Bay resolution authorizing the use of force based upon pretty flimsy evidence. Uh, that led, before long, to the War Powers Resolution passed in 1973. That, as you may remember, was passed by both houses over the veto of President Nixon, who was very much weakened by that time. Uh, this, this resolution purports to require the President to notify Congress when he deploys troops, and it provides, unless they're withdrawn, uh, provides, unless they're authorized, within 60 days that they must be withdrawn 
Most scholars have regarded um, this War Powers Resolution, I say passed in the penumbra of the Vietnam War. They regard it as unconstitutional for various reasons, some of them quite good reasons. And since then, the presidents have largely ignored it or uh, really uh, honored it only in the breach. As you know, this issue is made particularly important today, urgent today, I would say, by what is called the War on Terror, uh, regarded by many as an almost unlimited duration war, unlimited its ge geographical scope, and hence such a war, once commenced, may have, have no finite conclusion. Over the years, uh, putting on my lawyer's hat for just a minute, the federal courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have been very hesitant in facing up to this issue. You may remember that during the Vietnam War, several people took the issue to the Supreme Court of the United States, and over and over again, the Supreme Court of the United States held that these issues were political questions that were not uh, proper for judicial justiciable intervention. In the last few years, we've seen perhaps a change in that beginning to take place in the Guantanamo cases, where the courts have taken a somewhat more active role, at least insofar as determining whether or not the president has violated individual liberties in his actions as commander-in-chief when he's gone beyond what some people think are the constitutional boundaries. This issue is certainly front and center right here in 2007. Of course, the president got the Congress to authorize the Iraq war. I must say that's an authorization I think that many of the presidential candidates would like to have back, have their votes back. Uh, and there's even a move, move in foot in Congress at the present time to deauthorize the war, which probably won't go anyplace. One frontier issues, really on the front burner now, is whether the commander-in-chief authority gives the president power to override the Constitution. And you see that issue in whether or not the president can authorize torture that may offend the Constitution, when he can wiretap American citizens, and whether he can suspend habeas corpus. You read about those issues, of course, in the confirmation last week of now Attorney General Mukasey, and the Supreme Court will be revisiting that issue again uh, this year in connection with one of the, one of the Guantanamo cases. Uh, right now, of course, the, uh, right this day, this controversy can be seen in the effort of, of Congress to terminate the war, although they really always stand shy of, of, of stepping right up to uh, the power they have to defund, defund the war. The reason I'm thinking about that these days is that Secretary, former Secretary of State Jim Baker and I are heading up a commission to study this issue. Uh, it has one of those typical Washington commission with the, with the usual suspects, uh, Brent Scowcroft and Congressman Lee Hamilton and so forth. Uh, we're hoping to do something of a prospective nature. We are not able to enter in, into the current controversy, but we hope to focus our, reserva our recommendations on the 2009 Congress. It's really a great issue that deserves a lot of consideration. Congress may well, as they've so often done, ignore our recommendations, but I think we're quite determined to see if we can't find a way to bring to bear the collective judgment of both the President of the United States on these great decisions as to whether to go to war, how to conduct the war, and how to terminate it. 
this result turns out to be very difficult to achieve. The presidents of both parties, both Democrats and Republicans, are very reluctant to encumber, encumber their ability to do exactly what they want to do. And the Congress doesn't want to be blamed if things go wrong, and so they're very reluctant to exercise the power they really have under the Constitution. I'm not positive we can get any real place on this, but we're going to make a real effort because this is one of those issues that keeps coming up at times like this when we're in a war, people have tired of and the question is how to terminate it and really the president is pitted against the Congress with no satisfactory resolution. Well, thank you very much for listening to what happened to be on my mind at the present time and I, I now will turn you over to my colleague Bill Perry who I think will be saying a number of things that are more relevant to what you'll be hearing during the rest of the day. Thank you very much. What a pleasure it is for me to share this platform with Warren Christopher a great public servant, a great friend of Stanford, and a great friend of mine. I'm going to speak today about the security aspects of this conference. I spent most of my adult life under the dark cloud of a nuclear holocaust, a war that threatened no less than the annihilation of humanity. Now, happily, the Cold War is over, and the danger of a nuclear holocaust is a subject for historians, not journalists. But the end of the Cold War did not bring about the end of history. History is being written every day in the streets of Baghdad, in the deserts of Darfur, in the nuclear test range of North Korea, and in the nuclear laboratories of Iran. So while we no longer live under the threat of a nuclear holocaust, we do live in dangerous times. Every month, about a thousand American service personnel are killed, maimed, or wounded. The Taliban is resurging in Afghanistan. North Korea has tested a nuclear bomb, and Iran is not far behind. China is rising, and Russia's democracy is falling. It's hard to believe that all of these security challenges have developed since the Cold War began, probably since the Cold War ended. And I fear that the security dangers we face are all moving in the wrong direction. Indeed, as I look ahead in the next decade or two, I see four potential security dangers. The danger that we will be attacked by a terrorist with nuclear weapons. The danger that we will drift into a new Cold War the danger that we will drift into an environmental disaster, and the danger that radical fundamentalists will gain ascendancy in the Islamic world. All of these dangers will be discussed at this conference by leading thinkers from Stanford and around the world. The prospect of the rise of Islamic fundamentalism will be the subject of our dinner talk tonight. The looming environmental disaster will be discussed in two different sessions today. The danger that we will drift into a new Cold War is a sub-theme of two sessions dealing with China and one session 
dealing with Russia. And the danger we face from nuclear weapons is a specific topic of the second session this morning. I would like to comment briefly on the nexus between two of these, the danger of nuclear terrorism and the danger of an environmental disaster. I will do this by making three points, all of which I'm confident will be discussed in some detail today. The first point is that a nuclear terrorist attack would not, of course, be equivalent to the Holocaust we faced during the Cold War, but it would be the greatest single catastrophe this country has ever suffered. A few months ago, we sponsored a workshop called The Day After, which we gathered experts around the world to see what would happen in the United States the day after a nuclear terrorist set off a bomb in one of our cities. Of course, there would be many casualties, well over 100,000. But beyond that, there'd be huge direct economic losses, and the indirect losses would be even greater the political turmoil, turmoil, the people would lose their faith in the government's ability to protect them, especially if the target were to be Washington. And the social chaos engendered by the fear would be unimaginable. The most probable scenario we thought considered was the day after the bomb goes off that a terror group announces it has planted bombs in five more cities and will set them off once per month unless certain actions are taken, actions with which we would not really be able to take. Now, there's no real way of preventing movement of bomb or fissile material into an American city. There's no real way of defending against such an attack. And there's no real way of deterring such an attack. Our only hope is to keep the terrorist group from getting a nuclear bomb in the first place. That hope is diminished as more fissile material is produced by more nations. That's my first point. The second point is that we are in the process of drifting into irreversible climate change caused by large increases in the amount of carbon emitted into the atmosphere. Any prospect of averting this catastrophe depends on stopping very soon the increase in carbon emissions followed by a reversal of them. The programs and policies necessary to do that are understood, but there is no political will to undertake the huge costs entailed. The political actions needed are especially difficult because there is no single action that could turn around carbon emissions. Multiple actions are required, and they are required on a global scale. The needed actions include changes in our lifestyle that could lead to reduced carbon emissions, major increases in the efficiency of energy consumption, such as plug-in hybrids in green buildings, major increases in the use of energy sources that do not emit carbon, wind, solar, and nuclear. Many experts believe that major increases in the new generation of nuclear plants are a critical part of that solution. Even if many Americans do not agree, it is clear that most other nations do and are already pursuing a major construction program of new nuclear plants. Even if we wanted to resist the increasing use of nuclear power, 
such resistance would not be successful. China and probably India are going that route, whatever we do or say. The alternative program for generating more electricity in China is continuing the large-scale construction of coal-fired generators, which would doom any attempt to reduce carbon emissions. These two points lead me to my third point, namely that there is a fundamental conflict between our need to keep nuclear bombs out of the hands of terrorists and our need to reduce carbon emissions. For the global movement underway to make major increases in nuclear power could lead to significant increases in the terrorist's ability to get fissile material. The solution to this problem must lie in establishing international protocols for how nuclear power plants are operated and how nuclear fuel supplies are controlled. Indeed, these protocols are desirable even if no new plants are built, but become critical as the construction of new nuclear plants accelerates. There are many alternative ideas and proposals for how to do this, but no political will to enact any of these proposals. I would encourage the ongoing discussion on what the protocol should be, including some at this conference today. But I am even more concerned with how to achieve the political will so that any alternative has a chance of global acceptance. A complementary route to dealing with nuclear proliferation is working to first reduce and finally eliminate nuclear weapons. We know the steps necessary to move us constructively in that direction, but again, lack the political will to take those steps. Getting to that political will is a major objective of the Wall Street Journal op-eds, co-sponsored by George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, and myself earlier this year. It was a major objective of the seminar held by CSAC last month. It was a major objective of the Reykjavik II meetings held at Stanford in October 2006 and again in October of this year. It is a major objective of the Nuclear Threat Initiative and its co-chairman, Sam Nunn and Ted Turner. I would like to end my introductory remarks with my favorite quote from Elie Wiesel. Peace, he wrote, is not God's gift to his children. Peace is our gift to each other. That is, if we want peace, we should not be waiting for divine intervention. We ourselves must take the necessary actions. This conference can teach us what to do. What is needed is the political will to do it. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.